Well, it's my 12 years of hairdressing that probably taught me more about leadership, actually, than my emergency medicine training. Mm. Although, as I say, although I think that's probably different now. I mean, you know, I've done A&E for, for years and years. So I'm really glad that there's been a recognition that, you know, as an emergency physician, you have to lead. And that takes multiple forms. Welcome to the Big Careers, Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. And in fact, my hope is that many of you listening now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible where you make decisions that make our world a better place for next generations and especially for the next generation of parents. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from brilliant like-minded peers, join events or find out our world-class career development program, the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. By 3rd of October, you can apply for our fellowship for ambitious working parents in the NHS. It's our first sector-specific fellowship program and also will open applications in 2023 for our cross-sector fellowship to support working parents who are ambitious in their careers. Today's podcast guest is Karen Squires, who is an A&E consultant and Leaders Plus Fellow. We talk about changing careers from hairdresser to doctor, trusting your gut feeling and going through IVF. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Karen Squires. I'm an A&E consultant. I work in Liverpool at Aintree Hospital. I also have a title of Care Group Clinical Director for Acute and Emergency Medicine, which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, it just means that I kind of oversee the running of the acute and emergency medicine departments and then feed into the higher division. Who's in my family? So I have a husband called William, who's non-medical. He's a builder. And I have two children, two daughters. Cicely is 14 and Lorelai is three. (laughs) So big gap. Lovely. And you had the confidence to make a really complete career change. Can you tell us what it was and If you just take us back to that moment when you decided to become a doctor. Yeah, I haven't always been a doctor. So I started life, I was quite a clever kid. I thought about nursing when I was a a kid and stuff. There's a few family issues. And instead of kind of staying on in college and doing the normal kind of A-levels and stuff, I ended up having to go to work. And I started off as hairdressing. I joined one of those original YTS schemes many, many moons ago. And that was a really great career. I was really good at it and all the rest of it. And I kind of stuck with it. I then kind of progressed. I ended up self-employed, used to run a salon with some colleagues, really loved my job, really good at it. Going to work every day was just a joy. The clients were brilliant. We had a laugh. The work was good. I had a really good wage. I was single for the most of that time. I had my own flat, my own car. I had a great social life. Everything was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So why would I want to change I was probably the most highly educated hairdresser probably in the city of Liverpool because I used to, I did all my hairdressing exams. I used to teach in college at night school. I did a cert ed at John Moore's Uni. 
I used to do GCSEs for fun. I mean, I can't think about that now, but yeah, I do. I did a maths and a physics GCSE at night school for fun. I became a trichologist, so like a, a scalp specialist. And I think there came a point where I had the salon, we had a spare room upstairs. I was thinking about starting a trichology business and it was like, this is great. It's all going to be good. And I just had this horrible fear that I wasn't fulfilling my potential. You have to forgive me. I do get a bit tearful and it's not because... I don't want to talk about it. It's because it's just, it's really emotive. And I just thought I wasn't filling my full potential. And I just didn't want to get 10 years down the line and completely regret and things be too late. So yeah, I set about kind of, okay, what am I going to do about this? And it was, it was really kind of bothering me at the time. And I spoke to one of my tutors at college and explained the situation. I was really quite good friends with her. And I explained the situation. My God, that woman, she almost got me by the throat and pinned me up against the wall and said, you know, if that's the way you feel, you have to do something. You're so bright. You have to do whatever it is that you need to do. So kind of on the back of that, I thought, okay, at least I can phone Liverpool Uni and find out what it is I need to do to be a doctor, because that's really what I want to do. That that was kind of at the heart of it. So uh, I did, I phoned Liverpool Uni and they said, yeah, there's no restriction on age. At that point, I was 26. There's no restriction on age. Have you got any A-levels? I said, no. And she said, well, go away and get some A-levels and come back. And yeah, you'll be considered just like everyone else. So that was like, oh, okay. So I was like, okay, that's good. I've got a green light in that respect. What am I going to do now? So, okay, right. And I thought, okay, this is a big decision. Either I'm going to do it or I'm not. So I thought, I can't just, you know, see how I go. I can't just do my A-levels and see how I get on. You know, I've got to start with the intent of becoming a doctor. I had to just set my goal and like, right, that's where I'm headed. I had to get to medical school. That was the only outcome I I would kind of, I was aimed for, but that was a big decision. You know, I had a salon, I had a career, I had, you know, an income and all the rest of it. And I did a lot of talking around about that time. I probably bored everyone to tears, kind of wondering what to do and with looking for advice. And it was a conversation that I had with one particular person. It was a friend of a friend and he was a radiographer so takes x-rays in the hospital. And I, you know, I thought, oh, you know, a new victim, I'm going to ask him what he thinks about my idea. So I asked him and he said, well, for what it's worth, he said, I'll give you my two penneth. He said, don't do it. I said, okay, why is that? He said, well, I see the junior doctors, the way how hard they work. They work hundreds of hours a week. They're all on their knees. They work really hard, blah, 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 blah. He said, how old will you be if you were to go to medical school? How old would you be when you qualify? And I said, well, probably about 34. He said, don't do it. He said, you're going to be on your knees. He said, I see these kids at like 23, 24, and they're already broken. So, you know, 10 years down the line, don't do it. So I was like, okay, well, thanks for that. And we came out and my friend at the time said, well, that was really good advice off John. You know, what did you think? You know, that was, have you made your decision? I said, yeah, I've made my decision. He said, right, okay, so you're not going to do it. I said, uh, no. It said, if stamina is the only thing in my way, if the only restriction is stamina, then I'm going to do it. And the rest is history. That was it. Then I just set my sights on my A-levels with an intention of going to medical school. So that's what I did. I managed to, I signed up to night school, did to do three A-levels, maths, chemistry, and biology, three nights a week, as well as running the salon. And just basically set my sights on working hard for the next two years and managed to get into medical school by the skin of my teeth. And then basically, well, not that I didn't care about the salon and the people I left behind, but it was basically a full stop. Then it was like, right, okay, I'm going to put a full stop here. And now I'm going to go in a different direction. And that's mm-hmm. what I did. Luckily, at the time, I didn't have a family. Well, I've got my mum and stuff, but I didn't have children. I didn't have a partner particularly. So I was in a, in a good position to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Thank you for sharing. As you know, I'm extremely, really, really inspired by your bravery. I'm just 
interested, I presume that you might have had some judgment along the way because you have, you know, against, I'm sure it was hard, must have been hard financially. It's obviously massive. You don't see your friends as much, I presume, when you're a junior doctor. Did you face any judgment from others? And if yes, how did you deal with that? That's a really good question. At the time, I think I was blind to it, which is probably not a bad thing because I just became so focused on what I needed to do. I used to still make sure I had a social life and didn't neglect my friends and stuff and, and my family and those kind of things. I think there was very few people actually understood what it was I was trying to do, particularly my family. And at that point, nobody in my family had ever been to university. And I'm very, Maruta, very firmly working class, which I'm very, very proud of. But for them, that was a really difficult thing to watch me do because I had a career, I had a, a job for life. I had a job, I had food on the table, I had a roof over my head. Why on earth would I want to risk that, if you know what I mean? So that internal judgment from my family was quite a tricky one. To my benefit, I've always been the, the bit of an oddball in the family. So it was a little bit like, oh, well, you know what Karen's like, you know, she'll be starting with the left foot, not the right or whatever. You know, I, I was always been a little bit awkward. So they went along with it for me, but it was, I think I was blind to a lot of it. I was so focused. It was like, that. that's all I need to do. And then that funny thing, because I, I'm, obviously I managed to then get into medical school and that was great. And I was so excited and all the rest of it. And then I got there and it was like, Jesus Christ, what have I done here? Because then I never understood the impact of what I was actually doing until I got there. I was 29. I'd moved to London. I'd moved from Liverpool to London to go to uni. And every single other person pretty much was 10 years younger than me and had come through quite a lot of, I mean, at that time, quite a lot of people through private education, quite a lot of people through boarding school. I'd never met a single soul who'd ever been to boarding school in my life. And suddenly I was surrounded by these people. And it was a really funny thing. It was just, Jesus, what on earth is going on here? You know, and it really affected my confidence. It didn't affect my ability, but it affected my confidence. I kind of made a decision, look, either I'm going to let them beat me or I'm just going to join them, you know, so definitely because this was my first degree, jumped into the whole social life, student social life and all the rest of it, and then just had a great time. And that was, you know, that was brilliant. And it was a really tricky, you know, it was only after the first year that I'd actually passed all my exams with flying colours that I actually relaxed because up until that point, I was half expecting someone to pat me on the shoulder and say, you know, excuse me, you can step this way now, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> you know, you're in the wrong room, you're in the wrong court, you know, whatever. And I was genuinely kind of waiting for that. So it wasn't out until that first year had gone by that I actually managed to really, okay, now I'm here. I'm now I'm here and I'm staying because I've passed mm. and there's no, they can't throw me out and I'm here. So yeah, initially there was judgment from my family and then the judgment of those other people, because they were so much younger than me. I soon kind of blended in, you know, and I ended up with friends and, you know, some of which were, became colleagues and it just became a good laugh. And I became a bit of an, the oddball, but in a good way, you know, everyone wanted to be my friend because I was the straight talking, honest, crazy scouser, <laughs> you know, kind of, and that was, that was a different thing. Amongst the mature students on the course, there was a few of those, of course I was the oddball, you know, because they were mm. you know, terribly quite reserved and all the rest of it. And, and I kind of stood out in lots of ways, but you know, I just embraced it. So yeah, it's funny. That hangover stayed with me, has still stayed with me quite a lot. And it's only till fairly recently, although I've dealt with it and it's fine, you know, and I've managed to, you know, I didn't just get into medical school. I managed to qualify as a doctor. I did my jobs. I've managed to, you know, go through the path of emergency medicine and now I'm a fellow of the college and all of that stuff. So I became a consultant. All that 
kind of that hangover, if you like, of that still, you know, are you really meant to be here? It's only fairly recently that I've managed to shake that off completely, mm. if you like. Mm. Mm. Um, and part of that was was doing Leaders Plus. Mm. I'd actually been able to challenge myself on that and like, actually, you know, what do you really think? And, you know, what assumptions have you made about yourself? And being able to challenge that. So that's, you know, so thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. So in hindsight, what advice do you have to your younger self who was feeling that question of, am I meant to be here? Do I deserve to be here? What advice would I give myself? So you're actually much more kind of powerful than you think, definitely. And I never really understood the impact that I was having on those around me and the gravity of what I was even trying to do. You know, it's it's a funny thing. It was a really funny thing. I was so focused at the time. I'd probably say borderline. There was a bit of madness in there. <laughs> there must have been because I was so focused, but it was definitely like a fire in my belly. So I wouldn't advise myself against not doing it or anything like that, but I would basically just take my, probably say, take myself to one side and say, look, you are much more capable and powerful than you think. And it's that the impact of self-limitation, I think is enormous that, you know, oh, am I good enough? Or am I worth it? Or those questions that you ask yourself and they almost believe that it's, you know, the negative is the truth. It's about drilling down into that and just actually saying that's complete rubbish. You know, of course, of course, you know, you don't even have to ask those questions. So yeah, I'd probably just give myself a little tutorial about, you know, removing self-limitation and getting on with it. Mm. And there may be people listening to this who have got a gut feeling about something really scary that they would really love to do that excites them that, like you said, you use the word a fire burning in, inside you, mm-hmm. but what they want to do is really not rational. I mean, I'm not advocating for people doing things that are <laughs> completely irrational, but you have done something, no offense, but you have done something that on paper, I mean, a lot of people would have said, don't do it, I imagine. What would you tell someone who does have that burning feeling, but everything, you know, it doesn't really make sense to do it? Okay. So I'd probably say, I think you have to be really brutally honest with yourself first and actually decide, you know, what is it that you want? What's that feeling telling you? What is it that will quench that fire? What is it? Drill down to the actual detail of what that is. And what is the driver? What is it that's doing it? Is it money? Is it something else? Is it the badge? What is it? What is it? Or is it just that feeling? You know, try and drill down as specifically what it is that's going to do it for you. And then probably the next thing to do is communicate. If you're unsure, when I say communicate, I mean, ask questions. I mean, I spoke to loads of people and gain all of those opinions, you know, and keep asking until you find the right answer, basically, because the answer will come. And, you know, there's other times in my life when I've had, like, maybe not quite a stronger feeling, but, you know, my initial thought when I first became a doctor was that I wanted to be a brain surgeon, you know, and it was like, well, of course I can rule the world. I've I've done this far, I can do that. And then actually, when I'd actually thought about it, it was like, well, just because I can do something doesn't necessarily mean to say I should. And I need to think a bit more about my strengths and weaknesses and what it is that I can apply myself to that I know will be better. So that was a conscious choice then to choose something else and not neurosurgery. So yeah, have a proper chat with yourself and drill down into the detail of what it is that you want to do. Communicate, ask questions, gather opinion and find the answer, you know, and sometimes also there's no clear path. You know, there's very few people jump from A to B. And sometimes I understand now as a mother of a three-year-old at 53, 
I understand that the meandering path has made me who I am today and not jumping from A to B. So there may be other alternatives to take a step towards your goal, which is a, a bit more of a bite size, but actually is taking you in the right direction. So it's about just taking a bit of a sensible look at it as well and think, right, do I have to take a leap and go from A to B or actually can we go via another route or something a bit more practical in the shorter term? Also, there's no rush. You know, there's no rush. I mean, I was never going to get to medical school any quicker. I had to do the A-levels. There was the, whether I liked that or not, there was no way around it. So it still took me a couple of years to get that far. And it's about having that realistic time frame as well with it and think, okay, maybe I don't need to do it right now, but maybe I'll put it next on my list when this issue at the moment is over or, or whatever, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to do it all right now. So it's just about being sensible about it as well, but not letting that fire go if that's what you really, really want. Mm. You've alluded that you have a three-year-old and you say you were 53. So you had 53. her at 49, I think I remember you saying. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you had kids at very, a two quite different stages in life. And mm-hmm. I'm curious Actually, I'm going to ask two different questions, which is not helpful. Well, first of all, I want to ask, what made you decide to have a second child at this stage in your life? And how was it different to have a child now where you are very established in your career? You are a fellow of this, that and the other. And, you know, everyone would look up to you too. I presume you had your younger daughter where you were still training. Yes, yes. For me, I had always planned on having children, regardless of how or when or whatever. It was like, it's always going to happen. I remember having a conversation with my mum when I was quite young saying, I don't want children until I'm in my 40s. And my mum nearly had a heart attack because, you know, <laughs> that was that's far too old, you know. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, having spent most of my 20s and 30s trying not to conceive, suddenly when I became, I was a registrar in emergency medicine. And my husband, we'd been married about two or three years. My husband is a little bit older than me. He's five years older than me. And it was like, well, do you know what? There's probably a wrong time, but there's never a good time. So you know, that's, that's just kind of, the more we think about it, the more we're going to put it off. Let's just kind of, you know, crack on. Like, so we did. And so the first time I conceived, it was without a problem. I was 38 then. And that was fine. It was no problem. That was just, this is what you do. This is great. This is lovely. We had a home and all the rest of it and jobs and careers. And that was great. And I probably didn't give an awful lot of thought to what was going to happen after. Maybe I was a bit too idealistic. I was classed as a geriatric mother then at 38. So yeah, just don't talk about now. But anyway, so I had my daughter, which was a problem. And then having that child, although she was just delightful and I absolutely adored being a mom and all the rest of it, I was definitely, I felt like I'd been hit by a freight train. And I think that, you know, that happens to some people. Some people just completely slot into motherhood and feel wonderful all the time. I was like, oh my word, I feel like I've been hit by a train. And it was quite a challenge from a work point of view, I went back to work when Cicely was six months old. And that was a kind of a choice that my husband and I made at the time. Around about the time, it was the kind of financial crash of 2007, 2008. And a lot of my husband's work had dried up because he's a builder and stuff like that. And it was a bit like, well, look, actually, you know, it's probably better that I go back to work because it's a bit more of a reliable income and all the rest of it. So it was like, we made that conscious choice. With the retrospectoscope now, I was incredibly unsupported at the time. Not at home, but in work. I definitely went through a period of postnatal depression. Work was hard. Training was hard. You know, plus the fact that I had this enormous guilt that I was leaving my small person behind. You know, I was very fortunate. My mum stepped in to help with, with childcare. There was no better person I could leave my child with and all the rest of it. But I really struggled in that time. Really struggled in that time. And 
I always kind of thought it will be better next time. I'll do a better job next time because I won't have to go back to work so soon and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll, I'll do the other. So that's kind of how we went. And it was, we got through that and it was okay. And then kind of fast forward a, a couple of years and two pregnancies further down the line, which had failed, I found myself diagnosed with secondary infertility. So obviously the first child had not been a problem, but then the problems kicked in after. Now at this point I was 40, coming up to 40 and suddenly then all the conversation shifted away from, yes, this is wonderful. I'm sure you'll get pregnant too. Actually, <laughs> you need to get a grip of how old you are. The chances are it's not going to happen, blah, 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 blah. And this was just devastating, absolutely devastating to me because I've, hang on, this family, this, this family that I thought was going to be so easy, maybe naively is, you know, hang on, what's, what's going on? What's going on? You know, my husband and I talked, jokingly talked about having a football team and, and all the rest of it, you know, and suddenly it was, and having been an only child myself until I was 10, I didn't want my daughter to just be on her own. And that was purely a personal thing. I have no problem with other people just having one child. I, for, it was a very personal thing for me. And I was almost hell bent on, on having another child. You know, the reality check came in the form of, you know, one of the fertility doctors at you know, a hospital said to me, you need to get your head around this, that the only way you're going to conceive is through IVF. So it was like, okay, so that was a blow. And then it was like, well, okay, if that's what we've got to do, then that's what we'll do. So then we had uh, 10 years, more or less, of IVF, multiple rounds, which is another story in itself, especially while you're working. And I was, I think I was, became a consultant at this, I, th- I became a consultant about, about 34, I think. So that was a challenge. So all of those things to consider. And then I found myself in a position just, I mean, the IVF was really physically demanding as well as mentally. It's a lot bigger deal than people actually give it credit for, I think. Now, I remember having a conversation with my husband. We had one egg left and the last kind of IVF cycle that we'd had had been particularly traumatizing. And I just said, I don't think I can do it again. You know, so it was like, okay, well, you know, that's fine. We'll put it to one side and we'll, and we'll just move on. But I couldn't. It was like this one little tiny egg, the poor little thing is in the freezer. And, and it was like, look, okay, do you know what we'll do? Let's just do one more go. We'll just do this one more try. And then we'll put it to bed. Then we will literally draw a line and we will move on. I kind of made a bit of a vow to myself that for one of my 50th birthday things was going to be, I was going to become a mum again by hook or by crook. So it was like, okay, if this doesn't work, then we'll adopt. You know, we've got room in our family for other children. Let's, let's do that. Okay. That's fine. That's what we'll do. And then she worked. The last egg worked and you could have knocked me over with a feather when they told me that it was not just, you know, it, she wasn't just there, but she was viable. And, you know, my expected due date was a week before my 50th birthday. <laughs> like it wasn't by design. I'd mm. kind of forgotten how old I was in all of that. Mm. Like, and then, so yeah, I'd kind of resigned myself to the fact that it wasn't going to work. And then it did. I definitely felt like the gods were watching or something. Mm. I don't know. And she worked and I mean, and she's just a complete joy. You know, I really probably didn't again, maybe naively, I don't know. I didn't really understand the impact of what I was doing at the time. I've always been quite chipper and just, yeah, come on, crack on. And and suddenly it's like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm going to be 50 with a newborn, which was a completely different set of challenges. <laughs> mm. I can't imagine how tough it must be to go through all these IVF cycles and have bad news. And I know that some people report that the hormones have a significant impact on the mood as well, aside from the whole thing being traumatizing. Have you learned anything about dealing with extreme stresses 
and working at the same time. Do you think you're going to do that differently? Should you ever have a really challenging experience again? I hope not, but I'm, I'm interested in what you learn from that sort of really traumatizing experience. So I think probably it's around about, you've got to be kind to yourself. I'm working in emergency medicine is a very unique environment. You know, we deal with the day-to-day. We also deal with horrendous off-the-scale things. And both of those things are within our remit and everything in between. And so there is an element of me or an emergency physician that just kind of gets on with it and just kind of gets used to it, you know, and, you know, is, is your leg hanging off? Oh yeah, actually, you know, it's those kind of things, you know, and I always laugh about, you know, I see other people do really wonderful, wonderful things. They will love going to the theatre and I see these actors doing these wonderful things and I look and I go, my God, when I think of what I do for money, you know, <laughs> genuinely, like you can have, you can be up to your elbows in what you don't want to know, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And you you kind of walk away and then you just go, yeah, whatever. And you just kind of get on with it. And so there was an element of me that just kind of got on with it because that's what you do, you know? And so Lorelai was my seventh pregnancy. So I'd had kind of a, new, a number of miscarriages in between. And, you know, I remember being on shift and then thinking like knowing I was pregnant and then going, uh oh, you know, something's happening, but actually, you know, well, I'm finishing in an hour. So if I just carry on, you know, and stuff like that, it's like, hang on, you know, you've got to stop. If I, looking back now, I probably needed to be a little bit kinder to myself. I'm definitely a lot kinder to myself now. I've learned a lot of that. You know, I just have to stop and just take a little breath and think, right, actually, what do I need to do? And I always used to take me out of the equation. It was like these things were happening and I used to be the one to deal with it and just get on with it and make it make it all okay. But actually, I understand now that I am instrumental in that. I am actually part of that equation. And so looking after me is equally as important. So yeah, that's probably my biggest lesson, really. And I feel like that now. I mean, the environment of emergency medicine at the moment is incredibly challenging. And so it also makes me, I think, a better leader because actually I, I understand other people's challenges and I've got no problem in actually being kinder to them than they are if you like, like mm. already stepping in and saying, no, what you need to do is go home. What you need to do is go and have a break, go and take a rest, go and have a cup of tea. You know, I will step in with that before they will, because I understand that they might be like me and just crack on with it anyway, and mm. be actually really hiding the, how they really feel. And if, if they're not looking after themselves, then nobody is. So mm. yeah, it's such an interesting reflection because you are, to me, hearing your story, you're the absolute impersonification of resilience. And actually, that can work against you, can't it, in an environment where everyone else is very resilient and you're just used to getting on with it. And so you stepping in and telling others, just take a break. Uh, it's very powerful. You don't get that much leadership training. I'm sure you've had some, but you don't get that much leadership training in the NHS because you're essentially a specialist. And you say yourself, you're just, you know, you, you like being thrown into things and getting learning on the job. What do you think, in addition to what you've just said, have you learned about leadership? that you didn't know 10 years ago by your trying it out and see what happens approach? I think I used to view leadership as up there. It was always, you know, it was always them. It was always somebody else dictating. And the NHS is very much like that. You know, it's, and the, the structures within that, they're very much with titles and it's an institution. It's very much hierarchical. It's top down. And that was always my impression of that's what leadership meant. Of course, it's completely different now. I think I understand now that leadership starts from the bottom up, absolutely 100%. Now, within a big, massive institution like the NHS, although things are shifting and I can feel the shift happening, 
I am a bit, uh, not, not me personally on my own, but people like you think like me from the ground up can be at a bit of a lone voice sometimes, especially when everything is very divisional and top down and hierarchical, like I said. My training in leadership, although it is now part of the, at least part of the emergency medicine curriculum training, and I do teach on the, in the regional t- teaching program and bring a lot of my, the stuff that I've learned forward about culture and change and all those kind of things, which are all important aspects of it. I, of course, I'm in a very unique position, but it's my 12 years of hairdressing that probably taught me more about leadership, actually, than my emergency medicine training. Mm. Although, as I say, although I think that's probably different now. I mean, you know, I've done A&E for, for years and years. So I'm really glad that there's been a recognition that, you know, as an emergency physician, you have to lead. And that takes multiple forms. You know, it's not just dealing with numbers coming through the department. It's about managing your staff. It's about leading the change. It's about all those other kind of things. For me, leadership, it's much more about understanding the needs. It's about listening, optimizing situations, adapting, challenging, communicating. I learned all those things behind a hairdressing chair, mm. really, rather than than on the shop floor. I mean, there is an element of that on the shop floor, but that's so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm in a very unique position. Another aspect I think of leadership, which I didn't always appreciate, and that's something else I've got to thank Leaders Plus for. One of the early sessions I think we did, we identified values. And it's about identifying values. And I, I didn't really appreciate that the, the values that I held and how important they were. So honesty for me is absolutely hands down, like my most important value. And I will hang on to that. But it, what it's given me now is the pursuit of truth, if you like. So I will be almost, it's a real driver for me to get to the bottom of things. So a real, like what's the, what is the real impact? Like, don't tell me what, what an SOP looks like. Don't tell me what a pathway looks like. Tell me what it feels like. Tell me what actually happens at two o'clock in the morning. What happens to that person? What happens to that member of staff or whatever? So it's kind of given me this almost dogged determination, if you like, to pursue the truth. But now I understand that that's a real value in me. I'm just, I just use it to my strength and I'm okay with that. And that's Mm. fine because that's one of my strengths. And other people will have different strengths, but that's mine. Thank you for sharing. And there are a lot of our fellows who work in, in the medical sector say, describe this challenge or this tension between knowing that you need to look after yourself and that part of that means leaving at a reasonable hour versus knowing that there's still a patient waiting for you or members of your team that really need you, especially with chronic understaffing. How do you make decisions about what to do, whether to stay or to go home to your children and your husband? Are you using your values for that? I am. And essentially, as an emergency physician, you just have to make the call. And you have to trust as well the fact that I'm not going to leave somebody with nobody. I'm going to hand over to somebody. So we're quite fortunate in an emergency venture. There's, it's a 24-hour service, so there's always somebody to hand over to. You know, if you're particularly worried about something, sometimes it gets to you know it may be midnight, and I'm supposed to go home at midnight, and there's too many things going on, and I will choose to stay because you know I'm I'm the consultant in charge, and although I've, I leave a very competent junior level beneath me. I'll stay to help or, or whatever. And, and, and that you just have to make the call. If it's within hours and I've had a poorly patient and I've been dealing with and it's four o'clock and I need to go home because I've finished my shift or it's five o'clock and I've got nursery pickup or whatever, I just have to make the call and hand over to somebody else. It wasn't necessarily a bombshell when I realized, but I am not wholly responsible for the whole of the NHS. I mean, there are other people and you have to reach out to those and you have to trust your colleagues. So making that call is actually really important, you know, and just doing that. I take solace in the fact that what I've done so far has been a good job. You know, I'm present with my patients. I'm present on the shop floor. When I am there, I am, 
you know, so because we've got this other role now, so I spend a bit less time on the shop floor. But when I am there, I'm present. I give it my whole when I'm there. I'm engaged. I'm supportive. But you have to draw the line somewhere in order to go home. You have to. And then in, in, in trusting your colleagues and handing that thing over, then that's kind of how you do that with a kind of a happy heart about doing it. You know, I don't feel regret that I'm leaving someone in the lurch, or, you know, particularly a patient. You've got to make the call and draw the line somewhere. Mm. Interesting about being present. And quite a few of our fellows also mentioned a presence with being with the children. What are your reflections about how do you manage to be present with the children, with the husband, with your friends, when you know in the back of your mind there's this thing going on at work? Is it something you find easy to deal with or not so much? I have to distance myself some way from that. A lot of my time I spent in this kind of leadership role now, so dealing with a lot of other stuff. I've been very clear about the fact that if I'm not clinical, I'm not working Friday. And there's all we have WhatsApp groups for everything. You know, there's all kinds of stuff on there. And I just have to distance myself from it. There are a few key people that actually, if they phone me when I'm not supposed to be there and they phone me, then I will always answer because in case there's something. Other than that, I let a lot of it go over my head because there are other people to there as well to do that. And if I jumped in and tried to affect the change of every single thing and be reactive to every single thing, then something has to give. And the thing that has to give will be me or my family or whatever. And it's like, oh, hang on a second. I've drawn the line. It, that's not to say if I got a call because it was a major incident or something like that, I wouldn't endeavor to do my best to go in. Like if I'm not clinical, then then very much so I don't work Fridays. And then that enables me then. I don't feel bad all week because I know that me and the, me and the small are going to spend Friday together going to a play group or the beach or somewhere, you know, and, and something nice. So it kind of balances on, on both ways. I have to me, Fridays are what I give back to her and back to my family. So if I'm giving it to back to work, then I'm taking it off them. So yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it, actually, because it, then it feels like an active thing that you're taking rather than, yeah, yeah you let it take. That's uh, really interesting. And there's so much more that we could talk about, but we are running out of time. But I just wanted to give you the space. Is there anything else that you wanted to say to our listeners? Anything else that you think will be relevant for them? There's one other thing that I probably took from, from Leaders Plus again, and that was the power of networking. And I was always a little bit too, felt a little bit ashamed to do that. I've had my eyes opened on that respect and understand that what you offer and what you give in return is equally as important as what people can give you. And so once that penny dropped in my head, then I've been a, an awful lot better at networking. So don't underestimate the power of networking, I think. Mm. And just, you know, to gain some help in whatever whatever it is that you need to know or whatever it is that you need to do. And 99% of the time, people are nice and will help. And to finish, can you share three practical things that someone who wants to progress in a really pressurized career like emergency medicine or anything else for that matter, and who also has young children can do? So just your, your freshest thinking about combining a career in a pressurized environment with young children. Okay. So the first thing, this has come to light for me fairly recently because I've got, I haven't got enough to do. Obviously, I've been doing a master's in organizational behavior as well, but I've come across this concept of the self as instrument. So actually, you are absolutely part of that process that's going on. And if how you feel about it is equally as important. If, you, if, you, if your gut feeling of something is right or something is wrong, then the chances are it probably is. So have faith in that. Have faith in that absolute, you know, what you're doing. Your reaction to something and your, how you feel about something is equally as important a step in the process itself. So be mindful of that. And use that as something to kind of anchor to, if you like. That's the first thing. The second thing is to stop. Sometimes you just have to stop 
I do this thing, I probably end up doing it two or three times a week where I will literally, I find 20 minutes. It's sometimes it's when I get, when I get in the car and I put my timer on for 20 minutes and I sit there and I close my eyes and I don't, I have no agenda. I don't even do any of that breathing stuff or anything, mindfulness, none of that. I just sit and let my brain go quiet. And that for me is like a, almost like a little power nap. And it just gives me a little, I have to often find the answers on the, or the creativity bit of my answers that I need will pop up in my head. And it actually just makes me feel a whole lot better. It's given my brain chance to just reset itself a little bit. So that's another thing. And probably the most important thing is just give yourself permission. You know, give yourself permission to, to be, if there's something that you want to do, if you really genuinely identify with a fire about something and you're really driven towards it, then find a way, you know, give yourself the permission to do that. But that's a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, you have to give yourself the permission to be sad, to be angry, to be all of those things as well. But if that's what you're feeling, give yourself the permission to feel it. Mm. Very powerful. Thank you so much, Karen. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 41, where I talk to Becky Maxwell about dealing with uncertainty and leading in a crisis. She's also an Amy consultant. If you enjoyed something from this episode or if it's been helpful to you in any ways, then please do join our newsletter for practical tips and insight. You can do that by going to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. And if you are someone who believes in our mission and is keen to support others, I'd love for you to get more involved. An easy way to do that is have a look at our upcoming events on leadersplus.org.uk. If you're very senior, you can also apply to become a senior leader mentor. And of course, if you are a parent with kids between the ages of zero and 11, definitely consider applying to our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program. In addition to our cross-sector fellowship that we've run now for a number of years, we have at the request of some of our fellows created a version this autumn for parents in the NHS specifically and I'm very grateful actually to people like Karen who have fed into how to develop and make this as high impact as possible for the parents that will be going on it. During the fellowship you'll get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers. You'll get support with practical challenges such as for example workload management or saying no And also in small groups, you'll develop your vision for your career and family life and make a plan for practically achieving that. And it's all research-based. So we look at what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. And there's lots of extra stuff, for example, sessions with your partner, a life partner, if you happen to have one and so on. And there are some hardship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances. So please don't hold off applying because you're worried about finance. And we haven't allocated those yet for the upcoming fellowship. The NHS fellowship deadline is on the 3rd of October. And for the open cross-sector fellowship, you can apply in early 2023. I hope you enjoyed this and thanks for listening again. See you next week.